Welcome to listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. This is your host, John Martellero, and this week my guest is Apple industry analyst Renee Ritchie. Renee, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I've always enjoyed your writing. I've been a big fan of yours for a long time, and I think you're one of the premier Apple analysts in the industry, and uh, oh, everything you. you write has been just terrific. For the listeners, oh, I want to introduce you. Uh, Renee Ritchie has been covering personal technology for over a decade. He currently hosts his own YouTube channel where he provides news and analysts and insights into Apple and related technologies and culture. He also co-hosts MacBreak Weekly on the TWIT network and writes a column every Monday for iMore. And he's the former editor-in-chief of iMore. As I said, I've been a fan of yours for a long time. I want to hear a story about how you got started. What was your first computer and how did your career oh. get launched? My first computer was an Apple II Plus. My father was a, an IBM engineer, and he would work on their mainframes, but it was downtown, and we were in the suburbs, and he wanted something that he could work on at home. So he took me to the computer store, and I was wowed by these incredibly expensive beige boxes and their green and black fluorescent screens. <laughs> and then he brought it home, and I promptly watched him use VisiCalc almost every day. On a little nine-inch screen. Yeah. How, what were you doing on that on a machine at that age? Uh, well, they had all those weird, I don't want to call them ripoff games, but homage games. Like instead of Donkey Kong, there was Beer Run. And there were some legit games like Castle Wolfenstein. So I would play those. And then I also got into basic programming. And I think, I don't know if people know or realize back then, the low-res pixels were like a centimeter square. And the high-res pixels were probably a few millimeters. So I, I tried to learn how to do graphics and text-based interfaces and everything so, on that. So the early Macs were kind of hard to program for. Those of us who grew up on the Apple II had access to the Apple Basic, the integer and the floating point Basic, and it was a no-brainer. Yeah. You turned the machine on and there was the cursor. The first thing you did on an Apple II was you started programming in Basic. Apple II yep. um, kind of helped us all get started because like, we were doing Fortran at work, and come home and do Basic. But the Macintosh... Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of no, locked it down. was great. And then but unfortunately, he switched to um, another industry where it was mostly DOS boxes for oh. a long time. And then I ended up because during the John Scully era, I had a performa for a little while, but I didn't love it. So I ended up getting an Amiga 2000. And that's when I started getting into web development, graphics and video editing because they had the video toaster back then. Now, that was the source of your interest in college, where you got into uh, art and product marketing. Yeah, well, the product marketing I sort of fell into. Like, I got a, I ended up leaving college early to to get a job in web development because they weren't even teaching that in my college back then. It was all like it was all like Nortel Networks and very old technology. And because the company was small, I ended up having to just not only make the website but write the copy for it. And after we went through a few marketing executives. I just ended up doing um, most of the product marketing at that point and, and slowly took over that whole part of the business. What year was this? Oh, wow. Uh, it was in the 90s, but for the life of me, I couldn't tell you. It actually, was, it was later than that because I remember I was still doing that when the first iPhone was announced. So it was probably early 2000s. Yeah, the internet went, mark, went public generally around 1997. Yeah. And uh, everything got launched at that point. And the internet as we know it. The internet used to be kind of a private network set up by... Yeah, I was on CompuServe. (laughs) I was on CompuServe before the real internet opened up. Oh, the good old days. Yeah. Yeah. What what, what company did you work for? Can you tell us? I worked for an analytics 
database company. It doesn't exist anymore, um, but they did sort of high-end data, what, what we call now big data, but it was a little bit ahead of its time. It was doing ad hoc analysis and uh, really, really complicated data crunching that you know Oracle and Sybase and all the incumbents weren't doing yet. But I think it was too early for the market. Um, and it it ended up being absorbed. I think it was I forget who bought all of it, but it was it was broken up and absorbed into other companies uh, after a while. But I'd moved on to Imor uh, by then, so I lamented it, but I didn't miss it. Was that company doing all its work on a Macintosh and embraced it, or was it one of those weirdo companies that kind of looked down their nose at the Mac and said, "Okay, art department only"? So neither they mostly made like they eventually made a Windows NT version of the product, but it was originally designed for sort of AIX and and the big Unix and DEC alphas and those sorts of machines in the early days. And I was originally given Dell like the high end Dell laptops, uh, and I got a new one every year because that was part of the service agreement. And then the Vista version arrived, and it didn't have drivers for the screen that was built into the laptop. And it just wouldn't boot. And the IT department said, okay, that's it. We're taking it away and we're getting you a 17-inch MacBook Pro because you'll be more productive and we won't have to worry about this anymore. Cool, cool. So how did you get started with iMore? What happened? What was the, how did that get created? So it, it's, a, it's an interesting story because I was, I was really into technology. And I, you know, I was, there was Windows Mobile back then. And I had an HP Jornada. And I had a Palm Trio phone. And there was a website called Trio Central. And I used to go to that website and listen to their podcast. And right after the iPhone event, I was really impressed with what Apple had shown off because I'd never seen an interface or an experience that worked like that. And they started an Apple site called Phone Different to sort of ride off the launch of the iPhone. But I noticed it wasn't getting updated very often. So I started complaining. And Dieter Bone, who works at The Verge now, but he worked there back then, he, he had lost the person who was running the site for him. So while doing Trio Central, and they'd also launched WM Experts, and they'd bought crackberry he was trying to keep the phone different site going so i just kept complaining and he said finally well why don't you write something and i said okay fine i will and then i kept writing and i kept saying why can't we do this why can't we do this and he goes why don't you just run the site then mm-hmm. and i said okay fine i will and so i basically complained myself into into running that part of the the growing network at the time were you in the audience at macworld san francisco in january of 2007 when steve pulled the iphone out of his pocket no, I didn't even, I was so busy in like corporate enterprise stuff. I, I wasn't even paying attention to any of that. And then a friend of mine said, you have to watch this keynote because it was on yeah. the internet a couple of days later. So I ended up watching it two or three days later and I was just flabbergasted. I remember sitting there next to Dave Hamilton, who's the publisher of the Mac Observer. Yeah. And uh, I was watching Steve on stage and he pulled this iPhone out and he's talked about it was an iPod and an internet device yeah. and a telephone. But he held the price to the end, and I said to Dave, I said, I don't care how much it costs. I don't care. I have to have one of these. Yeah, yeah. And we all went out in July of 2007. We went and paid cash, like $500 or more for a real iPhone yeah. in hand. And it was just an amazing experience. And we look back on it now, and, you know, that was using 2G Edge Network, and it was so yep. slow on the Internet, and it was yeah. just painful. But it yeah, was a heavy experience. I remember one time I was out with, to lunch with my wife, and the question came up. We were discussing, and I pulled out my phone, got onto the internet, and found the answer. And it was just an amazing experience to have the world in your pocket. Yeah, uh, it, it was almost like the the internet communicator was the last thing on the list, and ended up being a, probably the most important thing on the list. Yeah. 
So what is your go-to Mac? Uh, right now, I'm all about the 16-inch MacBook Pro, and it's it's been a bit of a journey for me because I started with the 17-inch, and then I had to travel more, and it was just, I loved that machine, but it was not the most convenient to travel with, and so I ended up going getting a, a MacBook Air, and that was just so light and so easy to, to travel with. It was great, and then I started doing more video, and it, the Air was fine. Like, it could do video, but it just took forever to render, and that was okay when I was at home, but when I was at CES or Macworld or, or, or something like that, it would just, it took too long. So I went to a 13-inch MacBook Pro, and I stayed with that until the, the 2016, when they announced the new MacBook Pros, and I moved up to that, and it was just, it, the screen was so wide, and I could do so much more. And then the 16-inch came out last year, and it was even bigger and even more powerful, and it just, it, it could render video so much faster, and... I have an iPad Pro now, so when I travel, I use that more. So uh, the you know it's like Gruber's famous saying the the, the heaviness of the Mac lets the the iPad be light or vice versa, and that's really been true for me because I can use an iPad when I'm just at coffee shops or airports or hotels or whatever. I can get this big <laughs> MacBook again and not worry about it. I have a question for you now that I think of it. We were talking the other day at the team meeting about why the new 13-inch and the even the 16-inch. And now the uh, the new MacBook Airs, all three have a 720p FaceTime camera. Yeah. Do you have any insight into what Apple was thinking with a 720p FaceTime camera on these high-end Pro machines? Yeah, I, I think it's you know like the, I forget who said it, it was probably Don Melton or somebody that you like you know never assume. Um, uh, malice when incompetence is a much easier answer, <laughs> and it's just like like. They they made those screens when they went when they switched to the 12 inch MacBook and they got rid of the glowing logos. They made those screens just absolutely razor thin. And cameras want Z index. They want depth. They need it to, to get anything good in there. And they probably thought that the cameras on the Mac were such a low priority, especially before we're all stuck at home now. Yeah, uh, you know, and that serious people will use an iPhone or they'll use something else. And I think just those two things is their, their, their limitation they imposed on the space and their lack of, because they were taking the speakers super seriously now. The speakers are awesome and the scammers are still terrible. So my guess is that that's going to rapidly change over the next few years. Yeah, that was my theory too, that um, uh, Apple was not too worried about a FaceTime camera on a machine that you set up close to. But I've seen people turning their MacBooks, sitting on top of a stack of books, you know, towards a big scene where they're doing some sort of yeah. video scene. And the 720p camera doesn't do too well on that kind of situation. No, yeah. and it's not just like some people think it's the low resolution, but it's really it's everything. It's terrible in low light and backlight. It does like, it, you know, every sense of the word, it's a bad, not just a, a low resolution camera, but a bad camera. Yeah, that's too bad. It's yeah. a leftover from the Jonathan Ive era where everything had to be so thin that so functionality was I asked about that a while ago. Yeah. Is that, so his, Jonathan, Johnny's thing wasn't so much thinness. Thinness was how they marketed it, but his thing was lightness. That lightness was a user benefit. Like, especially as people began using these devices more and carrying them more from everything. Like, the, if the phone was too heavy, you couldn't game with it for a long time or read books on it or watch videos on it. because and People laugh, like, oh, you don't have any muscles. But over time, they, they get heavier and heavier and harder and harder to hold up, especially for a wide range of customers. And 
this new group of people began self-identifying as pros. Like we think of traditional pros, anyone who's been using a Mac, and I hate using that word. It's like anybody who lives a village north of you is a northerner. It doesn't matter how far south you live. Anyone a village north is a northerner. Anyone who does your workload or more is a pro, and anyone who doesn't is less. But we have all these founders and designers and people who consider, like they self-identify as pros, but they are drawn to more MacBook Air style um, amenities like the lighter machines, the sleeker machines, all those sorts of things. And Apple made a fortune off making those decisions. Like more people bought them, more people liked them. It just completely alienated the pros because they didn't make, like when they announced the new MacBook Pros and they said, we have one for people who liked MacBook Airs, what they really should have done is said, is said we also have one for people who really like Pro Max and it's heavier and thicker and the battery doesn't last as long, but wow, is it powerful for you people. Has Apple rediscovered the Mac? I kind of get the feeling that they went for a long time with kind of a sleep at the wheel on the Macintosh. And now all of a sudden things are really moving with the Macs. Yeah, I think they had a realization. And I use this analogy that some people hate, but I think it's very true. It's like Apple used to have just one product line, the Mac, and then they got the iPod and they added the iPhone and the iPad. And it's sort of like an agent, like a Hollywood agent or a music agent. And they had one client and it was like a crooner. It was like Kenny Rogers or... or um, uh, it, you know, someone of that era, Frank Sinatra. And then all of a sudden they get a new client and it's Taylor Swift. And the other uh, previous client is established, you know, they've got residency in Vegas, they're doing well, they have an established audience. The other one is setting the world on fire. And consciously or not, they're spending all their time just managing the survival of this hot new client, because the other client is fine, it's sort of taken care of itself. But after a while, that becomes neglect. And I think they, for so long, they were so desperate to keep up with the iPhone that all the resources they could get, they would shovel towards the iPhone. And also a lot of people who were like star talent, the people they call A-listers, they want to work on special projects, which is whatever's next. It used to be the iPhone. Now it's like right. automation and AR. They want to be on those teams. They want to be part of inventing the future. Other people want to be on the iPhone team. And it's harder to find people who want to be on, on the sort of established product teams. So a mix of those two things led to those resources being really starved and their ability to push out new Macs ground down. So when they had to fix the, the magic, the butterfly keyboards, the whole schedule got turned on its head. And now the MacBook mini, the Mac mini gets delayed. The Mac pro gets delayed. Then the Mac pro, because they're working on the Mac pro, they're late in updating the iMac pro. And it, it sort of snowballs because there's very little buffer for extra work in that team. Do you think the Mac butterfly keyboard is as bad as it said? It seems to me kind of a whipping boy. Everybody jumped on the bandwagon, and, and it seemed to be like it was a very popular thing to do. But I have a 2015 MacBook, and I loved the butterfly keyboard from day one, and I continue to love it. And it's never failed me. So sometimes I wonder, you know, is it just the squeaky wheel effect, or is the butterfly keyboard really as bad as people like to say it is? I think it's actually a combination of both, and I think there's there's two issues with it. And I, for the like for the record, I loved it too. I loved it from the moment I used it. Um, my 2016 MacBook Pro, I never had a problem with. I did have a problem with my Scissor Switch 2013 MacBook Pro. I had to get it replaced. Mm -hmm. It was the entire casing, the same as the butterfly keyboards. That part didn't change, so that was like a lot of unnecessary drama. But the, my 2018 
MacBook Pro, uh, the keys failed a lot. But I would just, and I don't recommend anybody do this. This is not me giving advice. I would just pop them off, clean them, put them back, and they'd be fine. You know, 100%. I did break one once, ordered a replacement off Amazon, popped it back on. It was fine. Um, and it's just their tolerance for things like that was a little bit lower. And the, so the two issues I think were one, it was divisive because you have people who like clickety clackety keyboards and everybody was OK with the 2013 or 20, 2015 and earlier keyboards. A lot of people really liked them, but nobody actively hated them. And traditional clickety clackety keyboard people hated the butterfly keyboards. And when you have only one manufacturer, like it's not like you can go to Dell or HP or Lenovo if you don't like one of the Windows laptops. The Mac is just Apple. So they alienated half their market and that caused really bad feelings. But then they had a slightly higher failure rate. And I think people forget that Apple's like, it's a real company. Like they feel like a bunch of people, but they have processes in place where things that break get logged. And that's why they have replacements and recalls for things like graphics cards or memory modules or whatever. And you see them go up on apple.com. And my understanding is the keyboard was never as serious as any of the big product replacements that they, that they would do in the normal course of, of Mac lifespans, but it became so toxic. Like the, on social media and also yeah, that's what I websites changed like in the old yeah. days ars technica would do a very technical display reading of it but now you have places like i forget topolsky's new site where it's like this is terrible it's ruining my life it's, <laughs> it's all dr- drama and first person yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know in tech insider and they all write in a very dramatic way that's not as scientific like i think if casey knew uh, if casey had written the same article for ars technica one it wouldn't have been as sensational but two apple would have acted faster because it would have been more understandable to them but because it was written for like i forget the name it was input it was the one he had before that it was just so sensational everyone's like oh it's just drama and all those things compounded until apple just had to change it because it got such a bad reputation i think you nailed it that sounds really good explanation to me yeah so while we're on the mac one more thing i want to ask you do you think the imac as we know it now is due for redesign is it crying out for redesign as some people have said it's it, 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 the, the, the way the iMac looks right now. It looks a little aged, even though it's super thin at the edges. It's got that bezel at the bottom with the big apple sticking in your face. You know, you'd, you'd like to have a display that didn't have that bar across the bottom. And maybe uh, what else do you think is, needs to be done? Is the iMac going to endure that way forever? Um, you know, I, I think Apple, do, like they sort of change when they can make things better. They don't, they're, they're fashionable with watch bands, but they're not fashionable with hardware. Um, and that's a, I think that's a good thing because it allows them to iterate a lot faster on things like internals because they know what the target chassis is, but they do want to improve the design over time. And again, I think they, their bandwidth for Mac products and having to deal with things like the butterfly, you know, butterfly keyboards, put them behind. Um, and now I think, you know, shelter in place has put them behind. But my guess is that they would have had an iMac ready to go this year. They probably will probably be the iMac Pro first because it'll get a micro LED display oh, yeah. and whatever new treatment the they iMac have left. Pro. So yeah. long since it's been updated. We're here at the Mac Observer. We're, we're afraid that iMac Pro is being deleted. Uh, deprecated or forgotten or 
I think the sin there is sort of like the sin with the Mac mini is that even if Apple does nothing else, it should maintain like whenever you every year they should update whatever they can. Like if it's if Intel's new Xeon chips aren't any good and they haven't been good like for for Macs for a while, at least update the graphics because AMD is still putting out new cards and every customer deserves the best possible Mac they can buy every year so that it lasts for as long as it can. So I think they should have been updating the graphics cards regardless for the last few years. But if if they're going to keep the iMac Pro around, and I think they should, I think it's it's it fills a really good niche. They should, you know, my expectation is it will go to Mini LED, and I have this huge hope that it'll go Face ID. But I don't know if that's an in vain hope at this point. Well, it's time to take a break. We've come to the end of the first segment. In the second segment, I want to talk to you about some of your interests and hobbies and get to know you better. But uh, right now, it's time for a short break, folks. We'll be back. I'm chatting with uh, industry analyst Renee Ritchie. Stay with us. Today, our sponsor is Linode. Linode helps you design, develop, and deploy in the cloud. You can build dedicated CPU, distributed applications, hosted services, websites, and CI, CD environments. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Linode is focused on simplicity, service, and value. Built using the most up-to-date hardware and a next-generation network backbone, Linode allows users to comply with in-country data protection requirements while taking advantage of all of Linode's technology and tools. The goal is to maximize the benefit you receive from your cloud by making it cost-effective to deploy robust compute, storage, and networking services that meet your ever-changing performance needs. Featured are a native SSD storage, a 40-gigabit network, and industry-leading processors. Pick from any of 10 worldwide data centers. And pay for only what you use with hourly billing across all plans and add-on services. 24 by 7 live customer support is always just a phone call away. You'll be able to deploy, maintain your infrastructure simply and cost-effectively. Plus, Linode's tools make it easy to provision, secure, monitor, and back up your cloud. To learn more, visit linode.com bgm. That's L-I-N-O-D-E dot com forward slash BGM. All new customers receive a $20 credit. Thanks, Linode, for being our sponsor. We're back. I'm chatting with industry analyst Renee Ritchie. So what enthuses you most about Apple as a company? It's changed over the years, obviously. And as Apple grows and becomes a different kind of company with services and we're, uh, you know, Steve Jobs is a distant memory now. What, what is it that, about Apple that, that really generates the, your enthusiasm? I, I think my favorite thing about Apple is how even now, even at the scale they operate in now, they still have this humanity about them. Like I, I had a friend who went to work at Apple and he was offered you know, more money to work at Facebook or Google. And he had an idea that he thought would just be revolutionary for education. And he knew that if he went to Apple, he would be able to submit that idea and it would end up on Craig's desk the same way that Phil Schiller's ideas for the next version would end up on Craig's desk and they would all go through it and he would have a shot even as a single contributor to affect the lives of billions of kids in this case. And I've heard that story several times. And when you look at some of the biggest features that have ever shipped for Mac OS or iOS, a lot of it involves incredible teamwork, but the idea and the drive and a lot of the code even comes from the idea of a single engineer. And there's very few companies in the world where you can affect 
the entire world that way. Like usually you're at a small, like you're a small indie developer who comes up with something brilliant or you're a cog in a wheel of a much bigger software company. And to have both those things, the, both the ability to influence and the ability to reach in a company Apple size to me is remarkable. And that sort of care and consideration, like privacy by design and the emphasis on accessibility and on interface, uh, and a, a lot of just how they, you know, Steve, uh, Tim Cook's famous, I don't give a damn about the ROI. You know, I'm going to do mm-hmm. things that are good for the environment. That, to me, just gives Apple a relevance that it is hard to come by in, in mainstream tech media these days. Oh, sorry, technology companies these days. Do you think Apple's funda- fundamentally more trustworthy than other companies, or is it just a marketing angle? I think it's both. I think they have a lot of incumbent executives who care deeply about things that are in line with the best interest of customers. Not always, but I think for the big picture stuff. And also their business model is set up in a way where they can be a hugely profitable company without having to do some of the things that cause at least me and and many other people concerns about how the company runs their business. Okay, enough about Apple. I want to ask about (laughs) you and get to know you better. A birdie sure. on my shoulder said that you are uh, very interested in Apple Watch bands and to ask you about comic books and Pokemon. So Apple Watch bands are just the fastest way Apple's ever found to separate me from my money. I've gotten better control over it over the last few years. But initially, they were just like, you don't buy a lot of Apple products. You buy an iPhone every couple of years or three years or whatever, but, and maybe a case every once in a while, but Apple watch bands were like fashionable and usually not that expensive in the grand scheme of things. I was like, Oh, I like that color. Oh, this band is new. I like that design. And they were just such easy purchases. So I have it under control now, but for a while there, I was buying way too many. Do you collect them as a matter of interest or do you actually change them out? You know, often I change them out uh, quite a bit, but I have favorites and both unfortunately and fortunately the the Hermes bands ended up being a favorite, but they're so expensive. I, I've, you know, I, I really constrain when and how I buy them. So the ones that I prefer are the ones that I buy the least and that's ended up being a good arrangement. Do you change your Apple watch face to suit the occasion as well? Uh, I sort of, I keep it on the, um, infograph a lot because that's sort of like my daily heads up to what I have to do. And then when I'm not working, I'll put it on solar because it's pretty or just Mickey mouse. Cause it's funny or, or something that's less, less business oriented and more fun. Are you as irritated as I am that there's uh, very few displays that have digital hours and minutes and seconds? Yeah, I really, you know, just in general, um, I would like the ability, like my my dream would be, I don't need full on customized watch faces or a watch face store. I just need the ability to pick a background image, pick exactly whether I want analog or digital and how many digits I want on it. And then let me put a bunch of complications on it and I will be super happy. Why do you think Apple clamps down on watch face? A couple of reasons. I think a lot of times, again, it's just it's constraint. Like in the beginning, they have to it's the same reason we didn't get cut and paste for three years. You know, Mm. the first year, Ken was making the keyboard. Second year, he was doing the app store. Third year, he had time to make copy paste. And I think it's the same. You know, the the WatchKit team had to make WatchKit and then they had to go back and add. And it took them until WatchOS 5 to get rich complications. So it's, it's like they didn't even have time to do proper job for themselves, much less us yet. The watch has been out for five years now. You'd think they'd squeeze yeah. uh, minutes and seconds in on more of the watch faces. Yeah. Uh, yeah, crazy. it's like I, I keep it on the on the circle face just for that many times. 
Tell me about Pokemon. So Pokemon is funny. Like I never played it as a you know, I wasn't that much into it as a child because I liked Digimon better. I always felt that they had a much more emotional and resonant backstory where the Pokemon was kind of silly. But then Pokemon Go came out and Serenity Caldwell was out playing the very first weekend and realized all the stuff online was terrible. And then when Serenity sees that, she starts writing. And we ended up getting huge amounts. Uh, Google hates not having anywhere to point people who are searching. They hate lack of, like, they hate having search volume and no targeting. So they ended up sending us massive amounts of traffic. So everyone started contributing. And I'm not good at self-control. So as soon as I started mm -hmm. playing it and writing articles, I didn't stop. Like I wrote about Pokemon every day, I think, for two years. And they were some of the top articles on iMore for years and years. And so it, it was fun. It was location-based. I got to get out and walk. I got to meet my neighbors. I got to find all the parks in my area. So it had definite benefits. But I was, um, I was mostly doing it because it was just, it became like, I think, second only to iPhone in terms of popularity on iMore. Wow, who do you think? Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you're also interested in something that I'm interested in and studied when I was younger, and that is martial arts. I read awesome. that you have a uh, brown belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Are you still practicing? Yeah, I mean, I started off when I was a kid, my dad sent me to judo. And because my dad sent me, you know, I did it for a while, but I ended up stopping just because it was his thing and not mine. And then I got into karate uh, when I was in high school and then Chinese martial arts when I was in college. And I did that for like, you know, I don't know, seven, eight years. And my the two people I was training with the most are like, we want the UFC came out and Hoist Gracie. You know, they, they were smart. They didn't send Hicks and Gracie, who looks like a Greek divinity, into the ring. They sent Hoist Gracie, who looked like a skinny little teenager, and he was still beating everybody. And, and I was like, I have to learn that. And because the Gracies were such a thing back then, you, you could find people who brought them in for seminars. So I started training in that. And I, my, one of the people I learned the most from lived in uh, San Francisco. So whenever I would go to Macworld or WWDC or an event, I would stay an extra week and train. And it's just, it, it was the closest thing I'd ever found to a, a real life video game. Like you, and you, and it was different than karate or, 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 and I'd done a little bit of kickboxing because if you, if you make a mistake there and you, you get hit in the nose or the eye, like it hurts and you're, you're, you're messed <laughs> up, but you can go almost a hundred percent in judo and jujitsu without judo. I mean, there's more impact. You can break things, but like in jujitsu, you can go close to a hundred percent and, you know, not be that injured. Uh, over time, it really ground my body down though. So I, I ended up hurting myself fairly badly a few years ago. And so now I'm really casual about it. I remember one time in my Kenpo class, one of the uh, lower level belts charged me and uh, he had his body open to me and he was just like coming straight at me. And I just did a front thrust kick out of instinct. <laughs> just, just couldn't control myself. I thought this was the natural thing to do. I'd been trained over and over again and my body just did its thing. And I caught yeah. him in the rib cage. And I didn't see that student for weeks and weeks and weeks. And one day I asked the uh, head instructor about it, and he said, well, where is that guy? And he said, well, he's got broken ribs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, like my mouth is like, hey, people ask me to ask me, like they look in the videos, like, what's wrong with your mouth? I'm like, I got punched in the face so often. You know, I got my mouth, I got my face torn open so often that it's never healed. And You work with gloves did, though, did you, right? Did you, always, did you always work no. with gloves? Almost never. Oh, we always um, worked with gloves in Kenpo. 
Yeah, yeah, no, especially like in the like, especially in the Chinese martial arts, they like they know belts, nothing. It was someone who'd learned in like the back rooms of China, means you know, under communist China, where if they caught you, you'd be severely punished. So it was it was just a completely different mentality. But the jujitsu, it wasn't even like nobody hurt me. I just I went I, I went to do a sweep like I hooked my foot under somebody's knee and went to spin them over and my foot stayed behind and all the ligaments just went snap, 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 snap. Mm. And I went to I went to ask about surgery and they're like, you know, your body's not designed to do that. You can walk, you can even run fine, but your your legs are not designed to go sideways. So you have a choice. You can get surgery, which is a risk, or you can just act like a normal human being. <laughs> like, okay. Oh, yes. Well, we're kind of running out of time. I don't have uh, more than a few minutes left. I want to follow up uh, asking you about the transition away from iMore, sure. your YouTube channel, what you're trying to do there, and maybe some hints and tips for people who want to do a video podcast. Sure. So iMore I got bought, the whole network got bought by Future, which is a huge publishing company based in the UK. They, they own like a Nantech and Tom's Guide and Tom's Hardware and Tech Radar and just almost almost every publication at some point, I think is going to be owned by Future. And it was like, it was, it was fine, but I felt like the work that I did wasn't in their best interests. Like they're very heavily on what, you know, what MacBook should you buy? Which Nintendo should you buy? Um, and I really wanted to do more industry analysis, which doesn't, doesn't generate revenue for them. And at the same time, I felt like I don't want to just cash a check either. And I had the opportunity to go indie and I thought, you know, if I don't, I'll wake up in 10 years and wondering, wondering what could have been. I had terrible time timing because it was like I gave my notice like two weeks before all of this happened. Um, and then I, and I was sort of like excited and terrified. But it, at a certain point, I just wanted to make something that was mine uh, and see what I could do. And I thought that was better for them and better for me. And we'll see how it goes. So tell me about the equipment that you use and how you do your production. So I don't advise the equipment that I use for anybody because I, it's sort of like the watch bands. I got a little bit too interested in video gear and I have like a cinema camera, which nobody who's just going into YouTube should, should buy. Like there's really good, really inexpensive cameras. Sony just announced a really great one. Um, but if like, if you're doing a podcast and you want to take it on to video, uh, you, first watch video podcasts like there's the joe rogan experience uh, there's a bunch of people who do podcasts they usually have a uh, lou from unbox therapy they usually have uh, a channel that just has a complete podcast in video form then a channel that has clips because youtube is not great for long form content that has like just the sections from the show cut up and then p get a good camera it can be a logitech brio which shoots in 4k it could be you know a lot of the sony and canon cameras now will do straight in USB uh, camera, put a good, put it on a good angle and record it well. Uh, and then use the audio from your podcast microphone because it's probably going to be better than the, the camera and do a few takes, edit them, see how they look uh, and, and then go from there. I edit in Final Cut now even for audio shows because I'm so used to it. What's the most critical factor? Is it lighting? Or is it audio? Is it post-production? For podcast is audio because, you know, like people will tolerate slightly worse audio when there's a picture involved. And there's that old thing Leo Laporte would talk about where like with radio, as long as the host sounds great, people will put up with people on the phone or with worse connections because we're used to it. Mm -hmm. But in general, the better you sound, um, 
the better the experience for the listener is going to be. And then lighting again, like you, you, it's the same as audio gear. You could spend millions of dollars on it if you really want to, but like get a good light, make sure you have good light on you. Do you have one of those uh, big umbrellas that splashes out the I light? I do. Ah. I do. I have an Aperture 120D <laughs> with a giant umbrella on it, oh, yes. but I need that, you know, cause I'm, I'm shooting with like a big fancy camera I mean, yeah. and I'm shooting raw now too, which is like just painful. But like I, 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 12 bit to me is better than eight bit. So I do it. What are some of the shows we can look forward to here in the near future? I, I kind of try to decide by the news cycle. Um, so like the next one I'm working on is probably going to be some of the rumors around the iPhone 12 camera. And th- the, the thing there is like, I'm not really big on rumors, but it's what people click on. It's like in the old days of the Nielsen ratings, everyone would click on, everyone would say they watched PBS, but they'd really watch TMZ or why there were so many tabloids at the, at the checkout at the grocery store. So I found like if, if I want to talk about LiDAR and I talk about LiDAR on the iPad pro, nobody cares. Talk about LiDAR on the iPhone 12. Suddenly like everybody wants to watch it. So I try to, I try to pick a topic that's current uh, or like promotion. If I say promotion on an iPad, nobody cares. If I say promotion on iPhone 12, suddenly everybody wants to watch it. So I try to find an educational topic that I can wrap a candy coated, you know, future device around and then hope that people learn something from it while getting their sort of hit on, uh, on YouTube. Cool. Cool. Well, we've come to the end of the show. I want to thank you for sharing with me and telling them maybe about your career and all these insights into Apple and the Macintosh and, and your podcasting. So this has been great. Thanks for joining me. It's been looking forward to this for a long time. Thanks. Thanks oh, likewise. Thank me. you so much. Tell the listeners how they can contact you if they wish. I'm super, I'm either super consistent or super boring, depending on your point of view. So I'm Rene Ritchie on everything, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, uh, ReneRitchie.net is the website. So as long as you know my name, you'll be able to find me anywhere that's convenient to you. Okay. Well, thanks again for joining me. It's been great, Rene. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode with industry analyst Rene Ritchie and John Marcellaro. We'll see you again next week.